We sing about the atonement often, but I fear that we frequently sing things thoughtlessly. Think about these things that we sing, amazing assertions about the atonement. For example, when we sing that glorious hymn that this congregation loves so much, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, we sing these words. Jesus, be endless praise to thee whose boundless mercy hath for me a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. Or think of that hymn that we delight in so much usually around communion. Man of sorrows, what a name. When we sing, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. And by confessing we believe in a full and final atonement of Christ, we're saying that Jesus bore the penalty for every one of my sins, past, present, and future. We're condemning the doctrine that says, I still need to atone for or pay for some of my sins in purgatory. Well, think of another one of our favorite hymns, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done, so loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. These hymns are simply faithfully repeating the teachings of Scripture. Teachings like that in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, I'm going to tell you what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins. Or 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul writes, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And this morning, I want to encourage you to look at 1 Peter 2, the passage that Pastor Anderson just read in your hearing. But we're going to only look at verse 24 this morning. And I want you to carefully digest what we hear as we expound the Apostle Peter's teaching. I rarely say this, but I'll say it today. As you hear today, your eternal life is at stake. The Apostle is going to clearly set forth what a man must believe in order to be saved. If you came here today with any confusion or doubt, pay careful attention. Because what we're going to look at is the gospel, nothing less. What we're going to look at is the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Let's pray and seek the Lord's help now. Sovereign Lord, because of the blinding effects of sin, we can stare glorious truth in the face and not get its meaning unless you graciously open our eyes and our understanding. Have mercy on us this morning, O God. Don't leave us to our own understanding, but let in the light of your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The necessity of the atonement is taught in the scriptures from the very earliest portion. In Genesis chapter 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, the Lord slays an animal. Its blood is shed to cover Adam and Eve. Now notice all the elements that are present in that very first atoning act. God supplies the atoning sacrifice. God initiates the transaction. A sacrifice must die and its blood be spilt since sin has taken place. And I would remind you that when you look at that that atoning lamb in Genesis 3, the very first blood that was ever shed on this earth was that of an atoning sacrifice. 
The first death that ever took place was a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death to atone for sinners. But that's not the only place in the Old Testament where we hear about the atonement. In Leviticus chapter 1, as the manual for the worship of God's people opens, what is the first concern? Leviticus 1 begins with clear laws for atoning sacrifices. And we're told there that the, the sacrifice of a spotless lamb is a sweet aroma to the Lord. He delights in it. And then we're told that most important detail in Leviticus 5. We hear those marvelous words, after the atoning sacrifice is slain, we hear, it shall now be forgiven him. We're told in Leviticus 9 that atonement must be made for priests and people alike because all are sinners in need of a sacrifice. But then we come to that most important text, several hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus takes flesh that teaches us about the atonement. I would ask you to turn there, Isaiah 53, which is the principal Old Testament text, perhaps along with the one that Pastor Anderson read a moment ago, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. But Isaiah 53 goes in great depth. If we didn't have a New Testament, we would still know everything we need to know about atonement just from Isaiah 53. And so look at Isaiah 53, and let me remind you, for example, in verse 5 and 6, this speaks of the sinner's guilt being imputed to Christ and graphically stating that Christ will be punished, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised. And then look at verse 8 and 9. states that Christ was punished for other people's sins, and he himself was innocent of any wrongdoing. Or look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53 that underscores the fact that it was God the Father who exacted the penalty for sin. Or verse 11, which highlights the principle of penal substitution, speaking prophetically of Jesus, he shall bear their iniquities. So when Peter writes these words, keep one finger there in Isaiah 53 because you'll need to, but back in our text in 1 Peter 2.24, when Peter begins to write about the atonement, Peter, as an Old Testament Jew, all he had, Genesis, Leviticus, Isaiah, the Old Testament, he had been deeply immersed in the concept and the practice of penal substitutionary atonement. Now look carefully at these words. As I said, we're going to dwell on this one verse because this one verse contains the gospel, the good news of penal substitutionary atonement. First of all, we're told who the sacrifice is. Peter tells us who himself, who's the himself they're referring to? There's no misunderstanding. Peter is speaking of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter is speaking as an eyewitness of this event in human history. He's speaking of God the Son, the one who's taken flesh. And what he's going to tell us is this man, referred to as himself in verse 24, voluntarily, that in itself is staggering, voluntarily lays down his life in the greatest act of sacrificial love ever. I'll say this over and over again. The sufferings of Christ were voluntary. This, for example, is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50 when prophetically we hear these words from Jesus. I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
what Isaiah is prophesying there is the, the thoughts and the words of Jesus that he offers himself voluntarily to be the sacrifice. By the way, Jesus knew exactly what sufferings awaited him. He could have easily avoided it or opted out. He knew what lay ahead. That's why in Matthew 26, as he heads towards the cross, we read these words. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus even states that he could have called more than 12 legions of angels to his assistance at the moment of his arrest. Why didn't he? Because he was voluntarily going to the cross. That's why Jesus could say these astounding words in John 10. I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Now, there's a couple of important modifiers of this word atonement. One is substitutionary atonement. Look at verse 24, 1 Peter, where Peter says in 1 Peter 2, who himself bore our sins. That's you and I. And what we're reading here is of a substitute. When Jesus was dying, it was not for any of his own sins. He was making a substitutionary atonement. Jesus, the innocent one, the sinless one, the holy one, the voluntary one, becomes the substitute for the wicked, the guilty. Isaiah 53 prophesied this 700 years before the work of Jesus. Listen to these words and what the repeated emphasis on. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. This was, of course, what was being pictured by the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Sheep and goats, cattle and oxen, and even for the very poor, doves and pigeons. To impress upon our Old Covenant forebears the seriousness of sin. The Lord required that the person offering that substitute for his sin lay his hands on that animal to symbolize that it stood in for him as his substitute. So if you're bringing a spotless lamb or even a dove, you had to put your hand on their head, symbolizing the transfer of your guilt to them. Also, the person making the sacrifice had to then kill the animal, which is usually done by slitting the throat with a very sharp knife. Listen to these words in Leviticus 1, the, the law of the offerer. He shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted then on his behalf to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. No one, you see, could bring a lamb or a goat or an ox or even a dove or a pigeon unless they were willing to state, I am a sinner. On a regular basis here, it's kind of entertaining even at times, when we'll have folks who will come here, and I've had people sort of get up in my face. One time I thought a guy was going to poke me in the nose right there in the narthex. And they said, well, I really enjoyed this service, but I didn't like that part about the confession of sin, because you see, I'm not a sinner. And I didn't need to do it, so I just want to let you know, I was quiet then. I didn't confess any sins. But Carl, it looks to me like you have a really wretched congregation. Because it looked to me like all of the rest of them were confessing sins. So I'm glad they're here because they need a preacher. But I didn't partake of that. 
you could not be an Old Testament Jew and say that. Because every time you brought a, a sacrifice, it was a substitute for your sin. Anyone who would receive the benefits of forgiveness and reconciliation with God had to acknowledge, name, confess, and repent of their sin. The second modifier, not only is this atoning work a substitutionary atonement, it's a penal substitutionary atonement. Look at what we're told in 1 Peter 2.24. We're told, who himself, here comes the key word, bore, carried, endured our sins. Now the word penal means punishment. A penitentiary is where one goes to be punished, not rehabilitated. The essence of Christ's atoning work is in his suffering the penalty. God's law and justice requires that sinners suffer and die. But Christ satisfied the penal obligation of the law for you by his sufferings. Jesus' sufferings delivered his people from paying for their own sin in hell for eternity. His sufferings procured the non-infliction of suffering upon the elect. All the suffering that Jesus endured from his birth until his death were vicarious. Jesus was born without sin, never committed sin. Therefore, every bit of suffering he endured was undeserved. His suffering was in our behalf and in our place. Every moment of pain, every bit of anguish, every second of agony, every tear of grief, every drop of blood was born for you. Christ the innocent, suffering in the place of the guilty. Although all of Christ's suffering was vicarious or substitutionary, the scriptures place a special emphasis on the, the last days of Jesus' life. At the Last Supper, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in that upper room? He said, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Christ was aware that he was about to drink the full concentration, the full cup of God's holy wrath against sin. He knew that he was giving his life as a ransom for many. That he, the sinless one, was about to be made sin, the object of God's wrath. Look where this payment, this payment of a penalty took place. Look at verse 24 again. We read, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This is speaking of the wooden cross on the hill outside of Jerusalem. Everyone knew this place, Golgotha, Calvary, was a cursed place, an accursed event and mode of death. We have known since Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. But one of our dilemmas, you and I, is that we really don't believe that our sins are worthy of the death penalty. We can't seem to grasp that God in his perfect holiness can't even look upon our sin. We don't really believe that if we die without having our sins cleansed, then we are lost for all eternity. Old covenant believers understood this better than we. They spent large amounts of money. Do you know how much a sacrificial oxen or bull or cow or lamb cost? 
time and effort bringing many sacrifices to the temple. They did this year after year. They were so concerned about the gravity of their sin, they would do anything to have the penalty paid by a substitute. All their lives, these old covenant believers kept up the ritual of sacrifices. They did this as they wanted their sin dealt with. But they also realized, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, that their sacrifices of bulls and goats weren't a permanent answer to the problem of their sin. So the good news of this text, look at the word in verse 24. When Jesus was suffering on the tree, he bore our sins. That's what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 when he wrote, He shall bear their iniquities. He'll bear the sin of many. Jesus was fully paying the penalty for your sins, for my sins, and a great number that no man can calculate. Your sin indebted you to a holy God. Jesus paid that debt in full. His atonement was penal. He died a felon's death. Even though it crushed him and killed him, he bore them. The old hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now I want you to think about what some of the penal sufferings of Jesus were. Because when you think of these, every one of these sufferings is what should have fallen on you. And what will fall on the unrepentant. First of all, there was the physical pain. Multiple beatings at the hands of professional torture experts. We hear words like pierced, crushed, scourging, sending the message that this was a horribly violent scene. This should have been you, bearing the torment. And then there was the pain of being under a curse. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. This was a a being humiliated to the lowest place, an outcast, a byword as men passed by. And then there was the emotional pain of human rejection. Isaiah would prophesy it. He was despised and rejected by men, despised and we did not esteem him. The rejection was so great by men that men walked up to God the Son and spit in his face. It's what should have happened to you because Jesus was serving as your substitute. The greatest suffering was that of divine rejection. Jesus, near the end of his time on the cross, cries out in in agony the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing soul torment in the very depths of hell, which is what every lost person will bear. In those moments, the Father would not console him. He was suffering what you should have suffered, the rejection of the Father. And then he suffered the final penal blow, death. Because the penalty for sin against God is always death, Christ had to endure the death penalty. Paul says it this way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, by his suffering and death, satisfied every requirement of God's justice. It's vital to affirm that Jesus paid for all 
of the sins of his people, past, present, future. Omission and commission, huge sins and tiny sins. If he'd only borne some sins, say, for example, just all past sins, but not all, you'd still be in need of a Savior. Was there any other way? Could, could any other way of salvation be found than a penal substitutionary atonement? The Bible answers with a resounding no. Hebrews 9 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. When you look at the penal substitutionary atoning work of Christ, that is it. That's your only hope. Now Peter goes on and look at verse 24. He states something that ought to be very, very obvious. He states that, that those who have had such a glorious gift should live for righteousness. Peter is teaching now that we've been atoned for, we must be utterly alienated from our sins. Jesus' atoning work was to separate us from the power of sin in our lives. By his death, Jesus has set us free from the bondage to our sins so we're alive. Listen to Peter's fellow apostle, Paul, teach the same thing in Romans 6. Paul writes, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Knowing this, our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. And what Peter's fellow apostle Paul is stating is that because Jesus has made a full penal substitutionary atonement for you, the power of sin has been broken in the believer. And we can no longer live under the power of life-dominating sins. Worry. Gossip, fear, lust, hatred, pornography, substance addiction. Paul says their power has been broken by the death of Christ. Paul will go on and say, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our salvation, you see, is not a theoretical doctrine. It's genuine deliverance from the enslaving, controlling power of sin. And what Peter's doing, look at those words in verse 24 when he says, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. He's glorying in the cross and the work of Jesus, not only as the instrument of our justification, but no less as the instrument of our sanctification. There's a textual question that you need to deal with. You have friends, family members, I certainly do, who have taken this text and they've run headlong into great error. Look at the end of verse 24. When Peter writes, By whose stripes you were healed. This bears a little bit of explanation. When did Jesus receive stripes? We're told in John 19, So Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The scourging was when Jesus received stripes. The scourge that John speaks of in John 19 was a leather whip that had sharpened pieces of metal and bone tied at the end of each strand of leather. Scourges had iron hooks tied at the ends. These were known as scorpions. And they were designed in the hand of a professional, professional torture artist to as the Scourge went into the back, the bare back of the sufferer. They were designed to dig into the flesh of the one being scourged and rip out skin and even organs. 
during scourging or receiving stripes. A person was stripped to the waist, tied to a post, flogged across the back and legs by Roman soldiers who relished their work. This brutal whipping would weaken the victim, causing deep wounding, severe pain and bleeding, lacerations, swelling and bruising. Frequently, the victim would faint during the procedure. Sudden death was common. By the time the scourging was finished, the scourgee's back would be a bloody, raw pulp. When the Jews scourged a man, there was a limit. Forty lashes, said the law of God in Deuteronomy 25. So under Israelite justice, the court stopped at 39 lashes. But the Romans had no such maximum. And the soldiers who delivered the scourging, the stripes, were the army rangers of their day, highly trained in torture. This prophecy had been specifically prophesied in in Psalm 129 when the psalmist wrote a thousand years before this, the plowers plowed my back and they made my furrows long. Jesus submitted to these stripes. That's why he says prophetically in Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who struck me. In fact, Jesus prophesied this very incident in Matthew 20. Jesus said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed and delivered to the Gentiles to mock him and to scourge him. This was no mistake, no surprise. Jesus was not caught off guard. He went to receive his stripes. And look at what Peter's doing here. Look at our text, the last few words of verse 24. By whose stripes you were healed. Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes or scourging, we are healed. The stripes that wounded and killed Jesus cured us. Listen carefully. The stripes, the scourging that wounded Jesus and killed him cured us. Jesus calls those who are sinners sick. The Messiah comes, we are told in Malachi 4, with healing in his wings. So Peter is asserting here at the last words of verse 24 that we are healed spiritually, judicially, eternally in the context by Christ's vicarious sufferings. Sin is pictured here as a a disease and is your greatest problem, not physical sickness, Sin is an abnormality, an intruder. It throws everything out of balance. It's infectious. Everyone catches this disease. Sin weakens and degrades men. Sin causes untold pain and anguish. Sin is always fatal. The wages of sin is death. One of the chief doctrinal assertions by our charismatic friends is that physical healing for physical ailments Is what Jesus was doing in his atoning work. And if you aren't healed physically, then you must be faithless because you just need to claim your physical healing. My friend, let me state this categorically and bluntly. That is not the historic teaching of Protestantism, which is consistently asserted that it's not always God's will to physically heal. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5 couldn't heal Timothy's stomach problems. 
Paul couldn't heal Trophimus at Miletus or Epaphroditus. Paul speaks of a bodily illness he had. Are you going to say to Paul, Paul, if you had a little more faith in the atoning work of Jesus, you could be healed. God decreed Job's ailments. In none of these cases was it stated that these sicknesses were caused by sin or unbelief. They accepted their ailments and they trusted in God's grace to uphold them. John even said, or John writes that Jesus said in John 11, that sickness could be for the glory of God. There are numerous texts in scripture that assert that our physical bodies are constantly running down and suffering various ailments. Our bodies are said to be perishable and weak. Paul says our outer man is decaying. Death and disease will be part of the human condition until that time when we receive resurrection bodies that are immune to such frailties. How do we apply this text? Listen carefully. The first is, penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach which you received and in which you stand. Christ died for our sins. What you've seen in verse 24, what you've heard from this pulpit today is the gospel. And therefore you're under obligation. You must do something with this gospel message. You must hard reject it or you must repent and believe in Christ the penal substitute. I would tell you what Jesus offers and gives all that come to him in repentance and faith is a full pardon. Pardon for yesterday's sin, pardon for today's sin, pardon for tomorrow's sin. If Jesus had not made a full atonement for sin, it would be of no help to you. And the gospel would not be good news, but awful news. Everything about Christ's salvation is full and complete. The law of God has brought you into complete condemnation. The justice of God has demanded a full payment for every transgression. The Holy Spirit has convinced you that you are completely bankrupt and without any merit or ability to pay. What happiness would it produce in you if I were to tell you this morning, Jesus has made a partial atonement for you. He's paid for all of your intentional sins. This would mock you. For you and I sin thoughtlessly a hundred times a day. Now, the reason why the gospel of Christ is such good news is this. Jesus has made a full atonement for all of your sins of word and thought and deed and past and present and future and intentional and unintentional. This is the reason why we as Protestants still have a massive disagreement with Rome. Rome teaches a doctrine of purgatory, a place where partially redeemed men supposedly go to pay for some of their sins since the suffering of Jesus was insufficient to pay for it all. There was a place where all sins were paid for, but it's not purgatory. It was Calvary. If Jesus could pronounce his work of atonement finished, and he did, how foolish is it to add to it? Another important application you need to press home to your own conscience now. If you need a substitute, it shows that you're inadequate. When I played basketball for the Christian college where Sandy and I did our undergrad, I went into a, a dreadful shooting slump during the last few games of my junior season. And I remember that 
dreaded sound still wakes me up sometimes at night. The scorer's table horn blowing to signal that a substitute was coming in for me. At the beginning of the season, I had the hot hand. I would play the entire game, and then my shooting began to drop off, and I would get pulled after the first half, and then after the first quarter. And the worse my play grew, the sooner I needed a substitute. I needed a substitute because I was inadequate. I think the actual phrase my coach used was, Carl, get over here, you're stinking it up out there. But the fact that you need a substitute says this, you are morally inadequate and deeply flawed. Have you come to grips with how desperately you and I need a perfect substitute before a holy God? That's what Christ the penal substitute supplies. I would say as well, the atonement addresses your greatest problem personally and the culture's greatest problem. Not global warming or terrorism or the economy or human trafficking. Your greatest problem and their greatest problem is that you have offended a holy God and broken his law and need to be made right with him. Then the Christian will pour his greatest energies into pointing men towards Christ as the answer to their needs and problems. But I think the most astounding application about the full penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus is this. That God will accept a substitute shows his astounding mercy and kindness. But that God will provide a substitute is a demonstration of love beyond compare. I'm still astounded at the mercy of God that he will even allow a substitute when I've personally offended him and defied him and broken his law times without number. But when I stop and meditate on this, that God supplied the substitute, never again will I think that he's harsh and demanding. No. Our God's care and concern for his elect is beyond comprehension. The great Scottish professor of the 1800s, John Duncan, known because of his expertise in the Old Testament as Rabbi Duncan, used to say to his students when he lectured on Isaiah 53, do you know what the cross was? It was damnation, and Jesus took it lovingly. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we praise you for your unspeakable love that long before eternity began, you decreed that your beloved and only son would come and live a sinless life and die a cruel and painful and shameful death in our place. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to embrace the gospel with great joy. At the same time, we name our repentance, expressing our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be as a congregation, a church who never is tempted to stray away from this gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus.